hearts and minds to hear the word you have for us this morning. Give us wisdom to understand and discernment to know how to relate your word to our situation. And give us the will to let it shape how we live. Amen. You're probably aware that we follow the revised common lectionary developed by a broad group of Protestant and Catholic liturgical denominations to suggest the Bible readings and sermon topics. I find the story of Egypt in the lectionary for today to be intriguing, and one from which we can explore how one person at one time in one situation showed forgiveness and brought about reconciliation. Stephen, often venerated as the first martyr of the Christian church, when he was accused of blasphemy by the council of Jerusalem, referred to Joseph as a hero of the Jewish faith. I borrow ideas from a lot of people, including from a meditation I wrote for Rejoice magazine about eight months ago that was published in January. The book by Robert Jeffress, titled When Forgiveness Doesn't Make Sense, was particularly helpful. The framing of that title suggests that what forgiveness means is not always obvious, and practicing forgiveness is seldom easy. It's a gift from God. The sons of Jacob from Canaan were about to continue their third difficult conversation with the second most powerful person in the great country of Egypt, Joseph was second only to Pharaoh himself. While they faced starvation at home because of a serious drought, Egypt's storage barns were full because of the foresight and administrative skill and strategic planning of the person they were about to meet. What we know that they didn't was that they had a history with that person. As a 17-year-old, Joseph was a favorite son of Jacob and had unwisely shared dreams with his brothers, which made them think he thought he was superior to them. When Jacob sent him to see his brothers, to see if they were doing well, they sold him as a slave for 20 pieces of silver to traders headed for Egypt. After arriving in Egypt... He got a good position working in Potiphar's house. He rose to the point where Potiphar left everything under his control. He was likely a handsome young man. Likely Potiphar was gone a lot in his guard duty. At any rate, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. He resisted and ran away, literally running out of his tunic, left in Mrs. Potiphar's grasp. With the cloak as evidence, she accused him of attacking her. He was sent to prison. It was a VIP prison. Nevertheless, it would not have been easy to be there for at least two years and possibly more because he had done the right thing. By the time we meet Joseph this time, he had developed a pattern of returning good for evil. When he was in prison, prison and asked to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams for telling the drought, he could have refused out of spite and let Egypt suffer a devastating famine. But he didn't. When appointed to a powerful position in Pharaoh's government, he could have retaliated against Potiphar's wife 
and against the ones who had imprisoned him unjustly. But we have no record that he did. He used the gifts of his administration and strategic planning that God had given him to prepare for the famine and thus saved Egypt and other surrounding nations from starvation. Joseph had sold grain to his brothers on previous visits. On the first trip, he accused them of being spies and kept Simeon as a hostage to be sure when they came back that they would bring Benjamin, the youngest brother. And now Benjamin was the favorite son of Jacob. When they returned, Joseph again sold them grain, and they headed for home, only to be stopped by guards sent by Joseph. The guards found a silver cup which Joseph had planted in Benjamin's sack. His brothers now stood before Joseph completely vulnerable. Joseph threatened to imprison Benjamin. After all, he was caught in a crime. Judah, the oldest brother, made a long speech, 17 verses long in chapter 44, pleading for Joseph to release Benjamin and offering to remain in his place as Joseph's slave. That pushed Joseph over the edge. The emotion penned up over many years of separation from his family came out in a torrent. Joseph said, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? Come closer. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. God sent me before you to preserve life. It seems forgiveness didn't come easily to Joseph. It took time and three visits. No cheap grace. There was the third conversation, and Joseph had tested This was the third conversation, and Joseph had tested his brothers harshly. Part of his forgiveness was releasing the brothers from carrying the burden of guilt for what they had done. He said, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. He said later after his father's death, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Both Egypt and Canaan, surrounding nations, survived seven years of drought. The spirit of Jacob was revived when he learned that the favored son he thought was killed by a wild animal was now chief of staff to the pharaoh of Egypt. Because Joseph acted faithfully, the evil act of his brothers was transformed for good. There's another theme here, but that deserves another sermon. When people respond faithfully with love and forgiveness and creativity, God can bring good out of even disastrous situations. Every situation is unique with its own dynamics. 
But we can learn a lot about forgiveness from this story. Joseph took the initiative to forgive. He did not wait for his brothers to apologize. On the first visit, he did overhear them discussing with each other what they had done to him, and they did that with some remorse. They talked, having no idea who he was or that he could understand their conversation, their language. Forgiveness can be offered whether or not the other person asks for it or even apologizes. God forgave us while we were still sinners. Reconciliation is the goal of forgiveness, and in this case, reconciliation happened. But while forgiveness can be done by one person alone, reconciliation takes two. Lewis Smees, the ethicist, put it this way, Forgiving happens inside the wounded person. Reunion happens in a relationship with the other person. Forgiving has no strings attached. Reunion has several strings attached. Sometimes it takes time for the wounded party to get to the point where they are able to forgive and reconcile. Sometimes the offender is not ready or willing or able to do the hard and sometimes painful work required for reconciliation. Sometimes forgiveness can happen, but ongoing contact is not wise. But the wrong party can still forgive. It's important to recognize that the person we hurt most by failing to forgive is often ourselves. Someone said that if you're holding a dangerous rattlesnake that can bite, turning it loose helps the snake, but it benefits you even more. Not not far from here, a man lay dying. He had been estranged from his daughter for reasons he could no longer remember and had not seen her nor her husband for 20 years. He had never seen his two grandchildren. His daughter, now living in California, called the hospice social worker asking for help, help to set up a visit with her father before he died. He responded, tell her not to bother. He never met his grandchildren. He died a lonely, bitter, angry, unhappy man. It's been said, forgive and forget. Not so. There are things we can't and shouldn't forget because they're part of our history and shape our lives. In cases where the offense might continue, appropriate precautions do need to be taken. Some offenses can never be forgotten, but they can be moved to a space where they no longer dominate our thoughts and actions. Bishop Desmond Tutu said about the injustices and atrocities in South Africa, he said, in forgiving, people are not being asked to forget. On the contrary, it's important to remember so that we should not let such atrocities happen again. Forgiveness does not mean condoning what has been done. It means taking what happens seriously drawing out the sting in the memory 
that threatens our entire existence. Carla Nosek said, it's not forgive and forget as if nothing wrong had ever happened, but forgive and go forward. Building on our mistakes of the past and the energy generated by reconciliation can create a new future. The attitude of forgiveness sets an environment where effects of mistakes and wrong acts can be addressed creatively and sometimes, but not always, corrected. In Washington State, a young woman was killed in a violent, horrible automobile accident caused by a very drunk driver, a young mother. The woman's husband, who had died, lost his creativity, could not continue his photography business. The parents' marriage uh, almost ended because of the animosity that developed because of their daughter's death. After about five years and many, many meetings in a victim-offender reconciliation conference called in a program sponsored by the state of Washington, which, by the way, is very similar to the one we sponsor through ADVOS, the husband and parents of the dead woman were able to forgive the young mother. The parents treated her as if the daughter was, as if she were the daughter that they lost and, beca- <clears throat> me, and became grandparents to her children, replacing the grandchildren they would never have because of their daughter's death. The husband's creativity returned and he resumed his photography business. Forgiveness and working through issues can create a new future. Paul Bowes, a businessman from Kansas, commented, Forgiveness does not change the past, but it does enlarge the future. Possibly one of the best statements in the Bible of what forgiveness means in action is Romans 4, 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. While we were in graduate school, my parents loaned Joyce and me some money. Later, they forgave the loan. Neither we nor they ever forgot their generosity, but the loan was not taken into account, not reckoned, if you will, in our relationships. They did not treat us as debtors. When we applied for credit, we did not list the forgiven loan as an obligation. We did not forget the loan, but neither did the fact that we once had it affect our relationship negatively. It actually made the relationship stronger and encouraged Joyce and me to make loans to our children at a later point. Forgiveness does not necessarily remove the consequences, and sometimes it's necessary to put space between ourselves and the offender. A student may be forgiven 
for plagiarizing on a paper or cheating on a test, but will still not receive full credit and maybe no credit at all for the assignment. They may receive a lower grade for the course, and if they do it again, will again be penalized. When my son created a problem, he would all, his first response was, do you forgive me? And then the second was, do you love me? Well, of course. And he expected to get off the hook. Uh, <laughs> he didn't. Nor does forgiveness take away the responsibility for the offender to do what they can do to make restitution or, if possible, to fix the damage done by what they did wrong. One of the things that motivates us to forgive is to remember how much we have been forgiven by God and by other people. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. There's also a corollary. The degree to which we are forgiven is related to our willingness to forgive others. We pray every Sunday, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That is a serious prayer. Many of us remember the horror we felt on October 2, 2006, 2006, when we heard that four Amish children were killed in their one-room school. A fifth died later. The whole world was shocked and surprised by the reaction of the parents and other members of the Amish community. They forgave the shooter. They visited his family. They attended his funeral. And they used some of the money that had been contributed to them to set up a fund for the education of his children. All around the world, people asked why and how they could do that. National Public Radio had it right. They saw something far deeper than one act of forgiveness for one event. They talked about a, quote, culture of forgiveness, end quote, that is, quote, woven into the life of the Amish community. If I remember correctly, one Amish bishop is quoted as saying, we did not have to decide if we would forgive. Forgiveness is something we do. Thomas Merton wrote, It is our forgiveness of one another that makes the love of Jesus manifest in our lives. For in forgiving one another, we act towards one another as he has acted toward us. And we read the words of Jesus earlier. Be merciful, just as God is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Amen.